scripture is very clear about this. There are many who still think that they can contribute to their salvation. In fact, every false religion, without exception, every false religion in the world is based on the belief that man can achieve somehow his own salvation. Now, they may have various rules of how you get there in their thinking, but it's all based on the principle of you can do something to achieve your salvation. This is what many believe today. This is what many believed in the first century. If we think we can do anything that would pay our sin debt or even get us closer to the goal, then we really don't understand the magnitude of our debt. When we owe an infinite debt, no payment short of an infinite payment will reduce the debt. It will still be infinite. There is only one person who can make that kind of payment, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid all that was possible and all that was necessary when he gave himself on the cross for us. What a gift. How can we even think about minimizing it? Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, Pastor Steve will begin his third message in this series that answers the question, What is necessary for salvation? There's a lot of debate about that question, even though the Bible gives a crystal clear answer that is found not only in our main text for this series, chapter 15 of Acts, but in many other passages, some of which we'll explore today. A friend once told me about the only time he ever wrote on a restroom wall. <laughs> he happened to have a marker with him and saw that someone had written on the wall, Christ is the answer. Beneath that, somebody else wrote, but what's the question? Well, my friend couldn't resist the opportunity, and he had the marker, so he wrote, How can sinful people stand before a just and righteous God? Mm, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? Maybe the answer that started the graffiti exchange should be more like, Christ and Christ alone is the answer. Here's Pastor Steve now to begin our study. This morning, as we return to our study of Acts 15, we find ourselves in the midst of the first and the most important church council ever to convene. It is the council commonly known as the Jerusalem Council because those who made up the council were apostles and elders from the church at Jerusalem. And folks, the issue they met to discuss and to decide upon was how a Gentile was saved, how one was made right with God. Was it by faith alone in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross or was it by faith in Jesus plus observing the Mosaic law, specifically the law of circumcision? Now, as we've already noted in past weeks, the reason this was such an issue that had to be brought to the Jerusalem Council was because of something that had happened in the predominantly Gentile church in the city of Antioch in Syria. Acts 15.1 tells us that some men came down from Judea, that would be from Jerusalem, and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So false teachers came to this church and they began saying to the Gentile believers there that they weren't saved, that they weren't even Christians, and that they couldn't be saved until they were circumcised, which was the sign God gave to Israel to signify that they were his covenant people. So, in essence, what these false teachers were saying is that a Gentile could not be saved unless he first became Jewish. And the rite of passage into becoming Jewish was circumcision. Now, in principle, this is the whole issue of is someone saved by simply placing their 
confidence, their faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins? Or do they have some part in their salvation? Do they play some role in it by earning their way to heaven by anything that they do? Well, the Bible makes it crystal clear. I mean, absolutely crystal clear that salvation is not by works, but solely by God's grace, meaning his undeserved favor. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten. Couldn't be any clearer. Paul said, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul makes it crystal clear here. Salvation has nothing to do with us. Otherwise, we'd be boasting. It is God's gift to us. And then he speaks of good works, but not as a means of salvation, but as the evidence of salvation. That the good works follow salvation follow trusting christ but the scripture is very clear about this there are many who still think that they can contribute to their salvation in fact every false religion without exception every false religion in the world is based on the belief that man can achieve somehow his own salvation now they may have various rules of how you get there and they're thinking but it's all based on the principle of you can do something to achieve Your salvation. This is what many believe today. This is what many believed in the first century. And so when Paul and Barnabas heard of this being taught at Antioch, they were obviously disturbed. And so they discussed and they debated this issue with these men, but got nowhere. So according to Acts 15:2, the church at Antioch decided to send them and some others from their congregation up to the city of Jerusalem for the apostles and elders of that church to settle the matter. And thus the reason for the Jerusalem council. But I want you to listen closely because what many people, many people don't realize is that this question concerning how a Gentile was saved had actually been addressed and settled long before this council had ever met. And the Apostle Paul knew it, but he was one of the few who did. See, what the Jerusalem Council actually did was make the issue of Gentile salvation by faith alone an official decree of the church so that all Christians would know the truth. In other words, what the council did in declaring that Gentiles were saved apart from circumcision was something that the apostles already believed. They believed it privately. But now it's going to be made public. It's going to be an official apostolic teaching and doctrine. And the Apostle Paul knew exactly what the other apostles would decide at this council before they they ever met. Because years prior to this, he purposely put them in a position where they were forced to make a decision about whether one of his Gentile converts needed to be circumcised to be saved. And the incident I'm referring to is not found in the book of Acts. But it is recorded for us in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And like the incident we looked at last week concerning Paul rebuking Peter in front of the whole church for his hypocritical behavior that denied that salvation was by faith. This incident also helps us to better understand 
what the early church was facing. Paul writes about this particular event, this episode, this incident, starting with the beginning of Galatians chapter 2, the first two verses. He writes, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private for those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, in these words, Paul tells the Galatians about a visit he made to the city of Jerusalem. He says it was after an interval of 14 years. He probably is referring to 14 years since the time of his conversion. And he says that on this trip to Jerusalem, he was accompanied by two men, Barnabas, his Jewish ministry colleague, and Titus, a Gentile who had been converted to Christ under Paul's ministry, a man who had become a leader in the early church, even having an inspired letter addressed to him, the letter known as Titus. Now, as we'll see in a few minutes, Paul had a very good reason for taking Titus along on this trip, but his initial reason, his initial reason for going to Jerusalem was because he says God had given a prophetic revelation concerning the believers in the city. So notice again what he says at the beginning of verse two. He says it was because of a revelation that I went up. Now, what Paul is most likely referring to is that when he speaks of a revelation, he is referring to a specific prophecy that had recently been given by a prophet a man named Agabus concerning a severe Famine that was soon to come upon the people of Jerusalem. If you want on your own, you can look it up in Acts 11, 27 through 30. So in response to this prophecy concerning the coming famine, the church at Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem with some relief funds in order to help the people of this church, knowing that they were already very poor and would be hit hard by this upcoming food crisis. But while the famine really was the original reason for going to Jerusalem, Paul decided that while he was in that city, he was going to address something that had become a serious problem in his ministry. And he explains what he did in the second part of verse two. He said, and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. And what Paul means by this is that he decided, well, as long as he was going to be in Jerusalem anyway, he was going to take advantage of the opportunity to sit down and meet with the other apostles and lay before them a problem that he was facing concerning his preaching of the gospel. And the problem was that he was being criticized. He was being undermined by Jewish men under the apostles' leadership because they were from the very same church in Jerusalem. These men who kept insisting that Gentiles coming to faith in Christ had to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Now notice that he says in this verse that he submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, meaning that he laid before the apostles for their consideration the message that he had been preaching for all of these years to the Gentiles. And what message was that? That salvation was by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, apart from any works of law keeping. That's what he had been preaching. He tells us he did this in private 
to those who were of reputation. In other words, this was a private, closed-door meeting with just a few of the apostles, not all of them, just a few of the apostles, those who, he says, were held in the highest esteem by the Jerusalem church, which he later identifies to be James and Peter and John, whom he calls pillars of the church in verse 9. Now, a very significant question that we have to ask if we're going to understand what this meeting was all about and how Titus fits into this whole situation is this. Why did Paul feel the need to lay before these apostles the message that he had been preaching among the Gentiles? He certainly didn't need their approval for his message because it had been revealed to him directly by God. That's what Paul makes so very clear in chapter 1 of Galatians. He said in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He means that, that he didn't go to a school to learn this. He wasn't tutored by the other apostles. It was Jesus Christ who directly revealed the gospel message to Paul. So, if this was the case, then why did Paul feel the need to have this private meeting and explain to these men, these other apostles, the salvation message he had been preaching? Well, he tells us why at the end of verse 2. For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, at first glance, this might sound as if Paul is afraid that what he'd been preaching amongst the Gentiles was wrong, but that's absolutely not the case. That's not what Paul feared, because Paul knew that God had revealed this message of the gospel to him. That's the whole point that he just finished making in chapter 1. So listen very closely. If you listen closely and understand this, it will not only help you to comprehend what Paul means by these words and why he met with the apostles, but you will gain invaluable insight into how dangerous the situation was that the early church was facing. See, when Paul says that he was afraid that he might be running or had run in vain, he wasn't referring to being afraid that what he was saying about Christ and salvation might be wrong. Not at all. But what Paul was afraid of was that once the other apostles heard that he didn't demand Gentiles who believed in Christ to be circumcised and keep other Jewish laws, that they would not support him. That was his fear. That was his fear because if they would not support him if he could not count on their support, then his ministry would be greatly hindered amongst the Gentiles, since this would open the door for the Judaizers to wreak havoc in the Gentile churches that Paul had planted. And they would do this by undermining Paul's authority as an apostle. See, the other apostles in Jerusalem didn't teach what the Judaizers taught, They didn't say that salvation came by law-keeping. That wasn't the message of the apostles at all. Remember, these men were apostles just like Paul was an apostle. The same gospel that Paul preached was the one that they preached, that salvation came by faith alone in Christ and his death on the cross. This is the gospel that Jesus had revealed to these men. It was the same one he revealed to Paul. No contradictions, nothing different. But watch this. All of the other apostles, except Paul, ministered to Jewish people. And circumcision and keeping the Jewish laws were already part of their lives. It was a part of the Jewish culture. And the Jewish people who were being saved, they didn't stop embracing this culture just because they were now becoming followers 
of Jesus. You see, the apostles certainly didn't tell these folks that they had to keep these laws to be saved. But observing these laws was just what Jewish people did at that time. They didn't think twice about it. It was their culture, their upbringing. They didn't deny that. So what this means is that these other Jerusalem apostles never faced the question of what would they do with the Gentile convert in terms of whether they would make him observe the Jewish laws. That just never came up. This had never been an issue with them. This had never come up before them for them to deal with because they didn't deal with Gentiles. They dealt solely with Jewish people who were already circumcised, who were already keeping the law. So, if then faced with a Gentile convert to Christ, would they compel him to be circumcised? That's exactly what Paul wanted to know. And that's exactly the reason he brought Titus along with him on this trip. It is very likely that Titus was the first Gentile that these Jewish apostles had ever met who had been converted out of a pure, idolatrous paganism. So the question Paul wanted these apostles to address was, what are you going to do with Titus? Were they going to demand that he be circumcised like the Judaizers from their very own church had been teaching? And if they did, that would mean a major problem for Paul. It would definitely hinder his ministry. In other words, Paul was looking for the apostles to just stand up to these guys. Stand up to these Judaizers from their own church and say that Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised because salvation was free and it was by God's grace alone. You see, how the other apostles responded on this very point of whether or not a Gentile believer needed to be circumcised was an issue, folks, of paramount Importance because this was about defining the gospel message. And Paul seems to be the only apostle at this point in time who understood this. And it would appear from these verses that because the other apostles didn't grasp what was at stake here, which was the purity of the gospel, that Paul was a bit agitated with them as leaders of the church because they had failed to lead by not taking a stand on this crucial issue of denouncing the Judaizers from their own church. This seems to be why when Paul speaks of James and Peter and John in Galatians 2, he does sound a bit sarcastic. He sounds critical of them. Notice how he refers to them. In verse 2, he calls them those who were of reputation. I think he's being sarcastic because in verse six, he says those who were of high reputation. Verse nine, those who were reputed to be pillars. It sounds as if Paul is scolding these men for not living up to their esteemed reputation as leaders of the church by taking the lead and being alert to this crisis and the damage that men from their own church were inflicting upon Gentile believers. However, now they did for the first time. Now they did have the opportunity to act as leaders by, by stepping up to the plate and making a decision about how they were going to handle Gentile converts. You see, Paul has forced their hand by bringing Titus along with him and explaining that his ministry among the Gentiles was being undermined by members of their own church who told men like Titus that they weren't saved. You're not saved. You need to be circumcised to be saved. So, what were they going to do? Would they force Titus to be circumcised and appease the Judaizers? 
Or would they stand with Paul and approve his message that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised? As you can see, as I said, this was a decision of monumental proportions with eternal consequences that these men were facing. And Paul proceeds to tell us what they did and the pressure they faced in making their decision. Verses 3 through 5. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul tells us that the apostles decided that Titus, though he was a Greek Gentile did not have to be circumcised. This was a historic decision on the part of the apostles because if Titus, as a Gentile believer visiting the headquarters of Jewish Christianity, was not compelled by the most influential Jewish apostle to be circumcised, then no Gentile Christian would ever have to be circumcised as a means of salvation. Praise God. But even though these apostles agreed with Paul, their decision about Titus was not without a battle and some intense pressure placed upon them. Notice that Paul tells us in verse 4 that even though this was supposed to be a private meeting with just a few of the apostles, some men, he said, sneaked into the meeting. One translator put it this way, they wormed their way into our meeting. So who were these men and why did they sneak into this meeting? What do they want to accomplish? Paul says they were false brethren, meaning they weren't true Christians. These were the Judaizers from the Jerusalem church. Unsaved Jewish men who said they were followers of Jesus, but they were not saved men at all. They were not converted men because though they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they were still trying to earn their way to heaven. And that is not the mark of a Christian. That's the mark of an unbeliever. Not only were they trying to earn their way to heaven, they snuck uninvited into the meeting. And on top of that, their associates who went to Antioch and started this whole controversy had lied by saying that the Jerusalem church sent them. All of those behaviors typify unsaved people and are marks of people we would be most unwise to trust. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. Thanks for tuning in. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve will continue this message when we meet again. If you happen to be in or near Clearwater and you're looking for a place to worship, I'd like to recommend Lakeside. I know you'll get solid Bible teaching and find a warm welcome if you do pay a visit. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. And the phone number, if you want service times or other information, is 727-441-1714. Or go online to lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. If you'd like to catch up on this series about what is necessary for salvation, go online to the Message Archive page at versebyverseradio.org. All of our previous broadcasts are there for you to stream or download for free. And there's also a giving page to make it easy for you to help support Verse by Verse so that we can keep producing and airing these radio Bible classes. We're grateful to the many generous listeners who help keep us on the air. But there is room for more if the Lord is moving you to join our support team or just to make a special gift. 
Check out the giving page at versebyverseradio.org or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. This is Jerry Peterson. Have you ever wondered what would have been the long-term results if Paul had yielded to the Judaizers in Antioch? What would that have meant to us today? Well, it would have meant that we would have to be circumcised before we could be saved, but if that were the case, it wouldn't be salvation at all. It would have amounted to a declaration that the blood of Christ was inadequate. It would have given us something to boast about, and that is incompatible with the abject humility and submission that leads to saving faith. On the next Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will share more about why Paul's firm stand was so important to us and why that was such a critical moment in the history of the church. 